Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our text for our sermon is John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned, but the one who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the basis for the judgment. The light has come into the world, yet the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. In fact, everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and does not come towards the light or else his deeds would be exposed. But the one who does what is true comes towards the light in order that his deeds may be seen as having been done in connection with God. This is the word of our Lord. God wanted to raise up a holy nation that would shine out like a beacon to the world around it. Here is where salvation is to be found, not in your false gods. And so as they grow into a nation, Abraham's descendants, and they become enslaved by the Egyptians, God sends all those plagues to make it clear that the Egyptian gods, they were false gods and they were powerless before God. And then he sin brings his people out. They are going to come into the promised land. But along the way, Pharaoh decides he's going to recapture his slaves and comes after them with the great army. God parts the sea and lets the people pass. And then he swallows up Pharaoh's army. They will never have to look behind them again for Pharaoh's army. You would think that would make them a faithful people that would know they could trust in the Lord. They complain because there's no meat. They complain because there's no water. They complain because there's no bread. God gives them miracle quail. He gives them that miracle bread, manna, and he gives them miracle water. He sustains them and they go to Mount Sinai and he explains to them what holiness is and he makes a covenant with them. And when Moses goes up on the mountain to get the whole thing ratified, they make a golden calf and worship it. God allows them to send 12 spies into the promised land so they can hear what they are going to be acquiring from the Lord. God wants them to trust in him to deliver them. And yet 10 of those spies who knew that God had delivered them from Pharaoh's army come back and say, oh, it's a great land flowing with milk and honey. There's no possible way we could ever stand up against them. We're going to die. Let's head back to Egypt. Only Caleb and Joshua say the opposite. And the people grumble and complain. And God says, I've had enough. You will not trust in me. And so this generation will not inherit the promised land. The next generation is allowed to inherit the promised land. And they are heading towards the promised land. The king of Edom, who is a descendant of Esau. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. So therefore they are relatives was not going to let them have passage on the king's highway. They grumble and complain because they're going to have to go around to come in and enter through Moab after roaming around the desert for their whole entire lives. What's another week's worth of traveling? But they get to grumbling and they're ready to go back to Egypt. They even complain about the manna and God, this generation, they've got to obey him. They've got to trust him because they're going to do things like the fortified city Jericho. 
Who would, how would you take a city like that with military? You'd come in with siege work and the machinery you need, they would circle around the city for seven days and they would blast trumpets and the walls would come down. They're going to have to obey God and trust that he's giving them this land. But instead, they're grumbling. So God sends, they're called fiery serpents. Their venom, if you were bit, you had minutes and you were going to die. But they're called fiery serpents, apparently by their appearance. And the ones who were grumbling against the Lord, they would get bit and many of them died. But God is gracious. He wants them to learn how to obey. This is actually a discipline. And so he tells them this very simple thing. Make a, a, make a brass serpent and put it up on a pole. And, and here's the thing. See, if you get bit by a poisonous serpent, what are you supposed to do? Put a tourniquet on it, get the venom out, get to a doctor and get the antidote? God had him do something that defies good science. It would take a miracle. They would have to believe that he was going to heal them and look at that brass serpent that was posted in camp. That's it. You had grumbled against me. I sent a fiery serpent to discipline you and now everything will be fine. You've just got to look. It's been elevated on a pole above camp. So all you got to do is look at it and I'll heal you. I'm teaching you to trust me and obey me. And you know, the irony is some people being bit didn't look to that thing and they died. Faith is obedience to God. And in our Old Testament lesson for this week in Numbers 21, which I've just recounted to you, God used that serpent to show obedience, to teach them obedience, because faith is obedience to God. In that case, it was obedience to look at the serpent and be healed. And so it is that a man in a very prominent position, a Pharisee who is a member of the Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus and meets with him at night. He's afraid of his position because if it's found out that he's meeting with this guy, he can lose everything. His position on the Sanhedrin, be excommunicated and everything. So the man meets with Jesus. It's after Jesus' baptism, after he's being tempted in the desert for 40 days, after that wedding feast in Cana, and it's right after cleansing the temple for the first time when Jesus celebrates the Passover for the first time since he had been clearly publicly anointed to be the Savior. And so he meets with Jesus and he confesses, we, that's the Sanhedrin, we know you are from God because no one can do the things that you do unless he was sent by God. It is amazing how Jesus will take the time to meet with, with Nicodemus in his weakness, in his fear Meeting him where he is at, meeting with him at night. And Jesus begins to explain to him about salvation. And he explains to him using an object lesson, using that brass serpent that had happened a thousand years earlier. Jesus uses that to teach him about how salvation is found. And that's where our text begins. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus came to live and die for us. Mankind lives under the delusion that we earn salvation, and we really have one of two delusions that we fall into, and we can mix the metaphors too, if you will. The one is the balance scale. You got to have more good than bad in order to get into heaven. 
But see, the law, the ten, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, what the law does is it always shows you unholiness. It doesn't say you've got to have more good than bad. It says you can have no bad ever. Once you've got bad on the scale, you are not holy, you're damned. So the idea of having more good than bad, which we call work righteousness, fails miserably. Okay, then there's the other idea mankind has, and that's the idea of wages earned. The idea that we do enough good things, then God will give us salvation, we'll earn it. But the law says everything you do, especially if you're doing it to earn salvation, is sinful. The law always accuses Many people get confused and they think that Jesus is somebody who made an example for us to follow so that we can earn heaven. No, 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 no. Some people think that Jesus just came along and, you know, kind of like a snowplow plowing the road for you. He cleared out the rougher things. So now you can have pulled pork sandwiches and you don't have to get that painful uh, procedure known as circumcision. But otherwise you do the things Jesus did and you'll be safe. That is that is not faith. It is sad when confused Christians say things like, well, do your best and God will do the rest. Where are their eyes focused on? Well, this is a lopsided eye. One is focused on themselves and the other is focused on God. But what Jesus says here is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You and I have a sinful nature. He is with us since the moment we were conceived. And if we want to be saved, if we want to live not as slaves, we have to look to Christ on the cross where our sins are paid for and Christ off the cross, proof that our sins are paid in full. We have to believe that Christ did all the work to save us. In fact, we have to believe that we are sinners in the first place. And how do we come to that faith? Jesus had explained that earlier in his conversation with Nicodemus, that flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. See, the law makes 10 demands. And as Jesus explains on Mount Sinai, he's not giving new laws, or not on Mount Sinai, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus explains, even our thoughts condemn us. So we struggle with this sinful nature, even by the minute our thoughts are violating the law. The law can only condemn you. It only says, there you go, you broke it, you broke it. It can only call sin or holiness. And once you have one sin, you're damned. It, it cannot empower you to keep one of its demands. But the good news of salvation in Christ, which is spelled out right here by John 3, 16, it empowers you to keep the one demand. Did you catch what the one demand is? It's faith. For when you hear that you look to God, the God-man who lived perfectly for you, went to that cross, to suffer the punishment for you, died so that his blood would wash your sins away, then the Holy Spirit works through that message and gives birth to the new person and convinces you it's true. Then the Holy Spirit continues to work through that message to continually convince you that it's true. So just as those people who grumbled against the Lord and would be bit had to look at that serpent and trust that God would heal them, they had to obey. So if you want to have forgiveness, if you want to have salvation, you have to look to Christ on the cross and off the cross. For it is God who 
earns your salvation. It is the God-man who removes your sin. Jesus elaborates further on this in verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned, but the one who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. There's one of the names for Savior, only begotten Son of God. Another name is Jesus, which means Savior. Another name is Christ, which means he was anointed, not you or I, to be our, say, our Savior. All the Old Testament names for God, those apply to Jesus. It's this simple. God became man and he kept the law perfectly for us. God became a man and he suffered the punishment for us. God became a man and his blood washes us clean. The only reason why anyone ends up in hell is because they don't believe in it. They either are indifferent, they don't care about it, or they flat out reject it. And it's sad when we don't realize how, as I said before, things like do your best and God will do the rest. That's not looking to Christ for salvation. That's putting an eye on you. And so we see faith is obedience to God. It's an obedience the Holy Spirit gives you that was purchased and won by Christ. And so in the Old Testament, for example, there was the obedience to look at the serpent and be healed. Jesus uses that as an object lesson to explain to Nicodemus. Faith is obedience to God, obedience to look to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. He continues in verse 19. This is the basis for the judgment. The light has come into the world, yet people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. In fact, everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and does not come towards the light or else his deeds would be exposed. See, the law always accuses us and the law shines upon us and shows us we're damned. We're unholy. Those analogies I used of thinking we can earn salvation for God the law tells us, and as the prophet Isaiah says, uh, quote, your deeds are filthy rags before me. Now, those filthy rags, they hadn't invented toilet paper yet. They were used for sanitary purposes. If we think, hey, look, Lord, you owe me salvation because I gave, I came to church so many times. I gave so much offering. I was so nice to my neighbor. God says, that's used toilet paper. Get that filth out from before me. Only by the blood of Christ is the filth washed off of us because everything we do is done by our sinful nature. If I were to go out and figure out a way to earn $5 billion and then I gave it away to hospitals and to fight cancer for children and adults and everything, yes, my fellow man might be benefited. But before God, it's a filthy rag, used toilet paper. When we are looking to Christ on the cross, we are stepping into the light. And the law tells us, you are a sinner. But that's why we step into the light. By 200, 250 AD, the Christian church had ironed out a worship service that began in the name of the triune God. Literally, they'd say we begin in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then they launched into confessing their sins. 
I, in the years I've served as a pastor, have been told several times by people, I brought my cousin to worship, I brought my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my best friend, and we got to the point where we started confessing our sins, and this is just a general confession. Lord, I'm a sinner and I know it. And my friend, my cousin, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, they stormed out of the church angry. They stormed out before they could hear the best part. See, they, no matter what they say at that point in time, saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I do not deserve salvation. They are in the darkness. The darkness is the devil's lie. In our natural condition, we are slaves to the devil. We are slaves to his puppet, our sinful nature, and we are going to die and go to hell. And there's nothing we can do about it. That's horrible to hear. But Christ comes and shines his light on us because the devil has us convinced that in him is true freedom, that we're not even slaves to him. Christ must come and say, you have been living in a dark world and his law shows us our sin. But then his blood, Christ on the cross, is the light that washes our sin away. And so Christians love to come to the Lord. They see the brilliance of beginning a worship service. Here's the God we worship. And now, Lord, here are my sins. Let me just get these up here on your shoulders. They're on the cross. I do that by confessing them. And thank you, Lord, you've removed them. Unbelievers don't like to come into the light. They don't like to hear that they're sinful. Christians, they know even their thoughts condemn them. This side of paradise, until they die, we're going to struggle with that sinful nature. But we step into the light and we say, Lord, here is my sin. And it's really a beautiful thing that we can do that in public. But, you know, let's admit it. We have sinful thoughts that we don't just want to confess in front of everybody. We begin our service with a very generic, very general, I am a sinner. But isn't it beautiful to go to a brother or sister in Christ whom you trust, whom you know you can confide and say, here is my pet sin and I struggle with it. And even though I didn't commit it today, the thoughts were there. And to have them say, Look to Christ on that cross. His blood has removed it. Oh, man. And then they can say, now let me confess to you my sin. And so faith is obedience to God. Obedience to look at the serpent and be healed, which Jesus used as an object lesson to teach obedience to look to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. And therefore, obedience to confess our sins and know, know, not just hope, but know they are forgiven. Jesus continues, verse 21, but the one who does what is true comes towards the light in order that his deeds may be seen as having been done in connection with God. See, the reason why we can't do good works to save us is if, if we're doing a good work to save ourselves, that's already sinful. And even if we do things as Christians, we have that sinful nature with us that's got to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. But Jesus, later in John's Gospel, will explain that he is the vine and we are the branches. We've been engrafted to him. His sap flows through us. So we do grow the fruits of love. And that law that always accuses, it doesn't do this for, for unbelievers. It can only do this for Christians because the good news of salvation in Christ has connected them to Christ and has empowered them. We say, Lord, how can I thank you? Thank you for removing my sins and making me your child. And the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are thank yous we return to the Lord. And as Martin Luther said, you don't have to tell the sun to shine. It's, it does it naturally. God designed it to do. That new man that the Holy Spirit has given birth to that is faith, 
He's attached to Christ. He's naturally designed to do this. So what I often find happens with Christians is Christians don't realize all the fruit of faith that's growing out of them. Then they look to the law. I didn't come to the church in order to earn salvation. I came because God loves me. And out of love for him, I love to hear his word. I love to step in the light and confess my sins. And I love to hear my sins are forgiven. And the law says, yeah, you're loving God there. It actually shows us our good fruits. And so we see it's obedience to see God's fruit in you. God has built this in your new man and he works it through your new man, does it? Your sinful nature struggles with it, doesn't want to do it by the minute. But the new person grows the fruit and only for the Christian does the law say, and there is the good fruit. Not done in order to earn salvation, done because you are already saved, you're engrafted to Christ. Faith is obedience to God. Oh, as he, Jesus used the object lesson from the Old Testament, obedience to look at the serpent and be healed, which teaches obedience to look to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Obedience to confess our sins and know they are forgiven. Obedience to see God's fruit in you. Nicodemus met with Jesus in secret that night. Three years later, when Jesus' body was taken off the cross, almost three years to the day, but not quite, he would boldly step forward with Joseph of Arimathea. He would ask Pilate for Jesus' body. In faith, he clung to Jesus as his savior, and he would even do what was supposed to be the women's work in those days. He would even try to do the best to him, prepare the body for a hasty burial since it was the Sabbath day. Nicodemus stepped into the light, and when the darkness came of Jesus' death, the light of Christ was shining through his heart as it does with yours. Faith is obedience to God. It was obedience to look at that serpent and be healed, which was Jesus's object lesson to teach its obedience to look to Christ for forgiveness and salvation, obedience to confess our sins and know they are forgiven and obedience to see God's fruit in you. Amen. And now to him who's able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.